it's old timey crimey. I'm Christy and I'm Jackson. <laughs> Amber is not here. She is uh, dealing with life, which sometimes smacks you in the face like super hard a bunch of times in a row, as I'm sure many of you know. And uh, so my wonderful husband, Jackson, is going to be uh, taking her place for this episode. Oh, hi. Oh. <laughs> now, Jackson is very familiar with the podcast because he listens to it every week before we publish it. I listen to it for quality control and he will listen with me. My favorite thing that he does, as he's gotten very, very used to the podcast, is that he will um, preempt whatever I or Amber are about to say in the podcast and say it himself. <laughs> so he knows this format very much. He's just usually not being recorded when he's uh, saying the exact same thing that we're going to say, but five seconds earlier. No guarantees today. No, this is your, uh, your first time on any podcast, so... I'm new. <laughs> Aside from when you pop into the room to bring Amber, like, you Oh, know. yes. I did make one appearance. Yes, yes. The, the banana with the mayonnaise and the nuts little treat that we made her. Oddly good. So, uh, okay. Jackson, I'm going to tell you about the Bourne brothers. All right. Okay. You sound um, cautiously enthusiastic. Very cautiously. This is a very wild, very, like, history-making case that we're about to talk about here. And it starts in Manchester, Vermont, um, around 1812. Now, at that point in time, the population was about 1,500. And Manchester's kind of nestled in the, near the Battenkill River, which uh, is a fun name. Battenkill! And it seems like a small population, but Burlington, uh, which is now the biggest city in Vermont, only had 200 more at the time. So, I mean, it was about the size of the other places. Manchester does currently have a Kate Spade outlet, though. Oh. So, maybe nice. we need to go to there. Okay. Some notable people who either were born there or lived there for some period of time. The most interesting man in the world. The Dos Equis guy. Oh, that guy. Mm-hmm. Myra Bradwell, who was the first American woman to become an attorney. Uh, John Irving, he was a novelist, screenwriter, Academy Award winner, and also Abe Lincoln's oldest son. He lived there, and one of the homes he lived in is now in the National Register of Historic Places. However, long before Abraham Lincoln's son was on the scene, Stephen and Jesse Bourne were there. In 1812, we have some descriptions of them. Um, Murder by Gaslight quotes some descriptions of them. Stephen was malicious, passionate, and when angry, blind to consequences. And Jesse tended to take after him. They had a sister named Sally. Stephen himself called Sally one of the devil's unaccountables. Which even if, if even the devil can't account for you, I, I think you're pretty much lost. Sally married Russell Colvin. And in 1812, they'd been together for 18 years, and they had two or six children. <laughs> Who knows? Always. Now, Colvin himself, his father had left in 1801, just flounced off to Rhode Island, didn't say when he'd be back, and never did actually come back. And Colvin took after his father a little bit. He sometimes would wander off, but he always came back, usually after a few days, sometimes a bit longer. And he would even sometimes take his favorite child with him, uh, which I guess he just acknowledged that that was his favorite child, was a two- to three-year-old son, and would just piggyback ride with him on his, uh, his 
random journeys. So a little bit about Colvin here. This is from a book by Leonard Sargent. I'll give it in the sources. The son-in-law Colvin was a man of weak intellect and was at times insane and would sometimes absent himself for days at a time without giving any account of himself. And once he was gone eight or nine months, though it is said he corresponded with his family during the time. Sally even did the same thing sometimes. She would just, you know, go off a-wandering, not say when she was going to be back, didn't leave a note, not sure if she took a kid or two or three or six or however many they had. After Colvin's dad left town, Colvin ended up losing the family farm. Not necessarily through any fault of his own. Basically, the town was worried that he would lose the farm and not be able to manage it and he'd make his mother destitute. So they just took the farm away and uh, started renting it out, passed the money on to Colvin's mom. And meanwhile, I guess they didn't worry too much about, you know, Colvin, the wife, the two or six children. Like, they were really just concerned about the mother. So they took the farm away, and he and his family had to go and move in with his wife's parents, which nobody liked. And the Bourne brothers liked it least of all, they weren't really shy about their feelings on the matter. Now, in May 1812, Sally Colvin was out of town. She was visiting someone in the next town over. And on May 10th, there was a pretty big dust-up between the Bourne brothers and Russell Colvin. They got into a big fight, and after that, Colvin just vanished. Now, the Bourne brothers said he was just on, quote, one of his customary journeys, Days and weeks rolled by, and months lengthened into years, and nothing was heard of the missing man. So he just kind of up and vanished, but there's kind of precedence for this, too. It's like, okay, maybe he vanished, but also the Borns are kind of, you know, devilish dudes. So, who knows? You know? Yeah. (laughs) I'm awesome at this. (laughs) You're really good at this, sweetie. You're natural. You, uh... You should, you should definitely quit your day job. Amber's off the show. <laughs> Bye, Amber. I'm doing too well. So they did say, you know, oh, Russell Colvin just wandered off. But they also said other things. Like uh, that he was dead. Just, just, okay. just came right out and said he was dead. Yep. And um, that they had put Colvin where potatoes would not freeze. Which is an interesting designation. A lot of gossip centered around whether or not the Bourne brothers had killed their brother-in-law. Everyone was pretty sure they had. And each day that Colvin didn't pop up, people got a little bit more sure, but they couldn't really do anything about it. There was no evidence whatsoever. They didn't even have a body. Um, maybe they batten killed him. Sorry. <laughs> nice pun. One day, some children were playing on or near the Bourne homestead, and they found a hat that was, quote, in a moldy, dilapidated condition. And it was said that this was the hat that Colvin had been wearing when he vanished. So they start looking for any other evidence. Now they're really actually putting some effort into this instead of just gossiping left and right. Specifically, they're looking for bones. Naturally. Don't have a body. Let's see if we can find it. And then somebody had a dream. Amos Bourne. He was an uncle of the brothers. And uh, he dreamt that Russell Colvin 
this is from Sergeant again, came to his bedside and told him that he had been murdered and to follow him and he would lead to the spot where he was buried. This was repeated three times. The place of burial, as described in the dream, was an old cellar hole about four feet square over which a house had formerly stood and which was used at the time of Colvin's disappearance as a place for burying potatoes. As was frequently done in those days, but which afterward had been filled up. So Uncle Amos is uh, kind of freaked out by this. He told everybody in town about his dream. And uh, Sergeant, once again, he also tells us that people were pretty superstitious at this period of time, as we know. And uh, they thought the dream was, quote, confirmation strong as proof of holy writ. So basically, this dude having dreams about bones and a potato cellar is the same as God writing it down on a holy piece of paper with a holy pen. Seems legit. Yeah, right? I mean, that the logic really tracks to me. Checks out. These two things are exactly like each other. So sometime in the midst of all this finding hats and dreaming about your nephew-in-law's ghost, the Bourne's barn burned down. Yes. You did it. <laughs> I did it. People thought that maybe the body had been under the barn. And then someone was walking his dog near the Bourne farm, and the dog got all excited and started going crazy digging under an old stump. Sure enough, they found some bones under the stump. And of course, they examined the bones and they decided these are human remains. Seven years, almost to the day, just a couple weeks shy, on April 27th, 1819, Jesse Bourne was arrested. Now, Stephen Bourne had either just moved to New York or was hiding there, one of the two. But one way or the other, he wasn't really available to be arrested. So for the moment, they just have Jesse. And they take him in front of the Justice of the Peace to perform an examination, as they call it. Sort of a grand jury investigation-like. So they went looking for more evidence for this examination, and they found it. They went to the cellar hole, opened it back up, and found a big knife, a pen knife, not a pen, a pen knife, and a button. And the big knife and the button were said to have been Colvin's. So they show that stuff in court, and also they bring out the bones, and they bring in no less than four doctors to discuss the bones. So pretty early on to be bringing in expert witnesses. Mm -hmm. That wasn't, uh, wasn't done too much back then. The doctors said the bones were from a human foot, and there were also some toenails and maybe a thumbnail. Uh. Yeah, nice. One of the doctors, after he had a little bit of time to sit with it, and, and sit with the bones because they let him take them home. <laughs> okay. I was admiring them for their ad advances in, you know, actually presenting evidence, but now I'm, I'm all the way back on the other side. It is old-timey crimey. It is, yes. This is a very old-timey thing to do, just let people take the bones home. I said the name of the show. <laughs> you said the name of the show. I mean, it was literally the first thing I said opening the episode, but sure, we'll give you that one. So um, he said, this might not actually be human bones. So he actually retracted his testimony the next day. He had testified it was bones, and the next day after, you know, spending the night with them, 
um, he was like, nah, they're not so much. Now, an interesting fact is that doctor was the one who was from another town. He's not all up on the local gossip. He's out of the loop. Um, so they actually then proceeded to basically request from a nearby town um, the remaining bones of an amputee. Somebody had been amputated from the knee down, and they were like, they buried the leg that was cut off. Okay. That's what they did. And they were like, we need that. Can you guys exhume that? Because we want to compare the two. We need to have a compare and contrast session. That's, that's an interesting point you've reached in your life when you're sending over to the next town being like, got a leg bone? Got any of those handy? Any of your amputees want to donate? So they compared the two sets of bones and now they decided that actually, no, they're not human bones. We're going back and forth and back and forth on this. It's constantly changing. It's not a solid case, even for 1819. Did they spend the night with the second leg just to duplicate the results? You know, it's not real science if they didn't. I know. So I think we can just ignore that whole second leg thing. So people are starting to rethink this whole thing. That's a really good thing for Jesse. He's still in jail and they still haven't decided whether they're going to charge him or not. What's not so good is that, uh, or for him at least, he confesses. So things seem to be going well for him. And then he's like, you know what? I'm going to tell you all this stuff. So he told authorities that he believed his brother, Stephen, had married, married, murdered, <laughs> murdered Russell Colvin, not married him. He said Stephen had actually confessed it to him. And it went like this. Stephen and Colvin had been doing some hoeing. <laughs> and then they had an argument. Cal Colvin tried to bolt. Stephen smacked him on the back of the head with a club. Batten killed him, <laughs> fracturing his skull. So Jesse also said he didn't know exactly what happened to the body, but he might know a few places where it could be found. So for a about a hot minute, you had some tempering of the furious hearts and minds of these people who were so mad that they killed a guy whose home they stole. <laughs> Like, <laughs> and then they calm down a little bit and then he confesses and then they're like, okay, time to lose our shit. And they do. They're off and running, searching for bones all over town. Just people out with shovels, just digging, 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 digging. It's, uh, it's the usual scene, you know, it's the usual. So uh, according to Sargent, quote, stumps were overturned, cellar holes examined, and the side of the mountain back of the premises carefully searched, but all to no purpose. Nothing resembling human remains was found. That's a fine way to spend a Saturday afternoon in the full bloom of springtime, I'd say. In fact, we don't have any weekend plans yet, Jackson, do we? You want to go digging for bones on Saturday? No. Just find some random person's backyard and... Post up and start digging? If I'm digging, I'm going to dig a hole and put a plant in it this weekend. Oh, okay. All right. That's another thing you can do. I mean, you might still find bones. I hope you don't because you'll be digging on our property and I don't <laughs> want that. But, you know, it's the possibility exists. No bones here. No bones here? You're sure? Pretty sure. Okay. Well, I'll trust you on that one. 
So despite the lack of any new evidence, they actually issued a warrant for Stephen Bourne. And as they were transporting him back to Vermont, they were like, well, efficiency is really important. So they interrogated him on the trip from New York to Vermont, but they didn't get anything new out of him at that point. They even arrested their father, Barney Bourne, yes, <laughs> but only let him go after, quote, a severe examination, which I have to imagine beating probably was involved there. Probably oh, beating. Yeah. They, they weren't just like speaking harshly, you know. The townspeople were also pissed off about that as well. They thought Barney had to be involved too. They wanted to get a grand jury to indict him. And they tried, but they failed. So Barney Bourne is safe. So it's grand jury time, and the star witness is one Silas Merrill, a fellow inmate of the local jail who is in for a forgery charge and so had spent some time with Jesse. This is what he said he heard from Jesse. He said it was true that he was up in the lot together with Stephen and Russell Colvin and his son picking up stones, that Stephen struck Colvin with a club and brought him to the ground, that Colvin's boy ran, that Colvin got up and Stephen gave him a second blow above his ear and broke his skull, that the blood gushed out, that his father came up and asked if he was dead. They told him no. He then went off. Soon after, he came again and asked if he was dead. They told him no, and he again went off. Soon after, the old man came the third time and asked if he was dead. They told him no. The old man said, damn him. Then he, Jesse, took him by the legs, Stephen by the shoulders, and the old man round the body and carried him to the old cellar, where the old man cut his throat with a small penknife of Stephen's. That they buried him in the cellar between daylight and dark, that he stood out one side and kept watch. So they have kind of, you know, a jailhouse snitch, essentially, give this long recitation of what supposedly happened on that day in May in 1812. And um, that also incorporates Barney back into it. Everybody's safe for three seconds, and then they get roped back in. So interestingly, prior to his testimony before the grand jury, uh, the authorities had been keeping Merrill in chains. Afterwards, they took his chains off, quote, and he was permitted to go about the streets. That feels a little bit like he was rewarded for his testimony. Yeah. Yeah. But the grand jury chose to indict, and this is, of course, a capital murder case. Now the town is really riled up. And the police, for some reason, bring this parade of people through to visit and talk to the brothers. Many of them fairly influential. And um, a lot of those people were telling the brothers to confess. And if they did, then they, the influ influential people, would try to negotiate the sentences from death to life in prison. So they're offering sort of a quid pro quo that maybe they don't really have any authorization for. But, you know, yeah, I'm sure it'll all work out. So... What do you think happened next? I don't know. I'm trying to figure out what's up with the feet from before. <laughs> okay. Can we find that out? Um, I don't know. All right. I'll stay tuned. Guess you'll have to wait and see. Uh, Stephen confessed to the murder. He said that he and Colvin got into an argument, but Colvin hit him first, and Stephen responded in self-defense. 
So the trial comes along and they've actually got pretty good representation. Um, a former Supreme Court justice who would go on to become governor of Vermont and uh, another man who would go on to be lieutenant governor. They've got some influential people on their side here. So let's see how this trial goes. Well, first of all, where do you think the trial's being held, Jackson? I don't know. (laughs) Okay. What are some, some common locations in a little New England village? Oh, somebody's barn? Okay. You're not quite, but where do people go every Sunday? Church. At the church. They held the trial at the church. Boy, if you have to put your hand on the Bible and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God, in a church, and you lie, whoo. Not good. But the courthouse didn't have enough space for all the people who wanted to attend and watch. So the confessions were a really big deal to this whole case. And the defense brought in some evidence that the confessions, as we kind of suspect, had been influenced or coerced from the brothers. And uh, this from Sargent, the judge charged in relation to the confessions that no weight should be attached to a confession incited by hope or fear, and left it for the jury to determine whether the confessions in this case were so influenced. So the judge basically split it halfway. He was like, I'm not going to say that the confessions were coerced, but I'm going to tell you, the jury, that if you think they were coerced, you should not consider them. Basically puts all the responsibility on the jury. And uh, so the jury was out one hour and came back with a verdict of... Guilty. Guilty. Quote, which verdict gave unqualified satisfaction to the crowds and attendants at the trial. So everybody was real happy, is how that translates. Now they brought the brothers in and asked them, hey, is there any reason you shouldn't be sentenced to death, aside from the fact that we kind of promised you wouldn't be sentenced to death if we, you know, uh, if you confessed? And uh, both of them pronounced their innocence and then were sentenced to execution by hanging on January 28th, 1820, in just two months. <laughs> they Their mother, she suffered some consequences here, as you can imagine. She was excommunicated from the Baptist church because they were like, well, your son's murdered a dude, so you must be an accessory or something. I don't know. Guilty. most (laughs) Most of the town was against them, but there were some who sympathized with the brothers. Although said sympathizers were very, very quick to reassure people that they knew the brothers were guilty, they just felt kind of bad about the whole death penalty thing, you know. Oh, you have to hang from the neck until you're dead. I feel sad. So the sympathizers actually did some work here. They gathered signatures for a petition. They were trying to get a pardon or a commutation. And there were also those who made sure it was known that when they signed the petition, they were only signing for Jesse. Since Stephen, by all accounts, was the main principal actor in the murder, they were like, okay, well, yeah, I think Jesse kind of doesn't deserve death, but Stephen, yes, put him to death. The petition went to the state legislature, who actually at the time had the power to grant pardons and commutations in Vermont. There was a big debate over all this in the House, and they actually voted on each brother's fate separately. So the results. Jesse by a vote of 104 to 31, 
had his death sentence commuted. And mm. it was, uh, he was instead to be imprisoned for life. Not expecting that. I know, that's kind of surprising. Though Stephen's fate falls exactly where you expect it. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was 97 nays to 42 yays. So he kept his death penalty. Guilty. <laughs> we listen to a lot of podcasts, and typically as soon as they say something negative about somebody, I go, guilty! And I'm almost always right, huh? You were almost always right. I did have to put a moratorium on it, just because it would be like Keith Morrison would have been speaking for three seconds of the intro, and you'd be like, guilty! I was right too often. <laughs> Not all the time, Spoiled though. the whole podcast for you. So uh, this, this sergeant that I mentioned, Leonard Sargent, uh, wrote a book about this case. And he was actually involved in it. All right. He was one of the attorneys. So he had gone to visit the brothers and tell them, you know, okay, Jesse, good news. Stephen, bad news. And as he left the cell, quote, a new idea occurred to him. And he asked if it might not possibly be of benefit to advertise in the papers for Colvin. Mr. Sargent observed that if Colvin was murdered, of course it would avail nothing, and asked him in plain terms, did you murder Colvin as you confessed you did? Stephen protested his innocence in the strongest language, and Sargent promised to do as suggested. Not being personally acquainted with Colvin, Mr. Sargent applied to Judge Skinner for a description of him. Mr. Skinner thought it, Skinner thought it a foolish expedient, and, though Colvin were alive with the limited circulation of the newspapers that day, of that day, and the slow circulation of the mails, it did seem a remote chance that a newspaper advertisement would reach him in time, as only two months intervened before the time appointed for the execution. So basically their lawyer was like, hey, why don't we put a description of him in the paper, see if anybody recognizes it, since they still haven't found the body, or maybe they found his feet, we don't know. And he went to the actual judge and was like, hey, you know Colvin, can I have a description? And the judge was like, this is a big, fat waste of everyone's time. Dude's dead. Come on. So, but Mr. Sargent was unswayed by all this negativity. He had promised, quote, and said he should perform. Accordingly, Mr. Skinner wrote the following notice, which was published in the Rutland Herald. Okay. Murder! Printers murder. of... Murder. Printers of newspaper throughout the United States are desired to publish that Stephen Bourne of Manchester in Vermont, is sentenced to be executed for the murder of Russell Colvin, who has been absent about seven years. Any person who can give information of said Colvin may save the life of the innocent by making immediate communication. Colvin is about five feet, five inches high, light complexion, light colored hair, blue eyes, about 40 years of age. That was published on November 26, 1819. So it was in the Rutland Herald but right by it in the same issue was an editorial about how there was no doubt that Colvin had been murdered. The Bourne brothers did it. This whole joke about trying to find a dead man was very silly and pointless and a waste of time. It did actually make it pretty far. It made it into the New York Evening Post about three days later. And that night, in a New York hotel, it was read aloud, where there was, by coincidence, this dude, Mr. Welpley. He had actually known Colvin back in Manchester before the disappearance. So he's familiar with him. And he had some stories to tell about Colvin, 
quote, anecdotes and peculiarities concerning him. And so standing near Welpley was a dude named Chadwick. And when all the talk about Colvin was happening, he realized it sounded like a guy he knew in Shrewsbury. Uh, it was a man who lived with mm-hmm. Welpley's brother-in-law. Everybody knows everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Mr. Welpley went off as, you know, as somebody who had met Colvin prior to his disappearance and, and alleged murder. He went off to Shrewsbury to see the supposed Colvin. And uh, Mr. Chadwick was also doing his part. He sent a letter to the Manchester postmaster saying, you know, I think I think I found him. This was um, his letter. Some years passed, I think between five and ten, a stranger made his appearance in this county and upon being inquired of, said his name was Russell Colvin, that he came from Manchester, Vermont. He appeared to be in a state of mental derangement, but at times gave considerable account of himself, his connections, acquaintances, etc. Among his relatives, he has mentioned the Bournes above. He is a man of rather small stature, round forehead, speaks very fast, and has two scars on his head, and appears to be between 30 and 40 years of age. There is no doubt but that he came from Vermont from the mention he has made of a number of places and persons there, and probably is the person supposed to have been murdered. He is now living here, but so completely insane as to not give a satisfactory account of himself, but the connections of Russell Colvin might know by seeing him. So basically, he's requesting that the Manchester Postmaster put this in the actual newspapers, but everybody ignored it because they were like, we got the murderers right here. We're we're going to hang one of them and the other one's going to be in jail forever. Is this why I'm not allowed to yell guilty anymore? (laughs) I don't know. I, I guess maybe maybe there might be some lessons to be learned from this case, but maybe not. Maybe it's just completely pointless and everything is always the same. Continue. <laughs> so Mr. Welby was on his little trip to see the supposed Colvin. I guess Dover, New Jersey was a house where the supposed Colvin lived. And he tells the dude, you know, who he was living with, who supposed Colvin was living with, uh, why he was there. And they decided that when Colvin came back, as he was out working... Welpley wouldn't really say anything. They would just see if, if Colvin recognized him. You know, somebody he'd known supposedly like seven, eight years before. Quote, returning from his work and seeing Welpley, he looked at him very sharply, but said nothing. After some time, Welpley spoke to him, calling him by name. He said Welpley must be mistaken. Colvin was not his name. It had been once, but he was another man now, and denied all knowledge of Manchester and his former associates. At last, Welpley said, I see you have a scar on your forehead. How did you get that? Colvin replied, chopping on the mountain for such a man, naming one of his old neighbors in Manchester, which circumstance Welpley knew to be true, and by gradually drawing him out, made him show some interest in his former friends and acquaintances, and he related so many incidents and trivial matters that there could be no doubt of his identity. (laughs) (laughs) this whole podcast was a lesson to me isn't it (laughs) i wasn't intended that way i was supposed to be telling this to amber (laughs) this whole thing (laughs) this whole thing was a lesson for jackson typical wife stuff teaching my husband a lesson with my podcast (laughs) i got owned you really don't know if you did or not So they were trying to convince supposed Colvin to go back to Vermont to clear everything up. He was very, very against this idea. 
Finally, they convinced him to go as far as New York. This is, um, this is fun. Quote, on arriving at that city, he was determined to go back, and Welpley feigned assent. But instead of going on board a ferry boat to cross the river, he took the boat, boat to Troy, New York, which he afterwards claimed to Colbin was done by mistake. So he's just like, oops, wrong boat. <laughs> this one just happens to be heading in the direction I want to go. So they ended up in Troy, New York, another 160 miles from Dover. And at that point, they were only 50 miles from Manchester. So Welpley was like, well, we're so close. Yeah, Come on, well. we're almost there. So someone, um, th that letter that he'd been found had finally been, you know, gotten some attention. But most people were still like, yeah, right. A few people were starting to wonder about this. And everyone else was taking bets. This was, this was the big betting pool. I don't feel so safe betting on this one anymore. <laughs> so your money isn't safe. So they get to Bennington, where the county court was in session. So they're not in Manchester yet. They're in Bennington. Uh, quote, someone rushed in and said that Colvin had come, and the court broke up in the greatest confusion. And judges, clerks, sheriff, lawyers, and spectators jumped over benches and rushed through windows and doors to see the man whom all had believed dead, and for whose supposed murder some of them had been instrumental in having two men sentenced to hang. He was immediately recognized by all who formerly knew him. What? <laughs> Is it guilty? Was that what you said? Uh. Guilty? All right. <laughs> I won't yell guilty prematurely anymore. <laughs> okay, we'll see. So they take him into Manchester. They do have a courier that they give him a head start to make the announcement, which brought people out of their houses. So he essentially became a parade. I'm sure this guy who disappeared off to frickin' New Jersey for seven years and didn't want to come back here in the first place is really enjoying leading the crazy board people parade that's going on here. <laughs> the parade of people who really need freaking Netflix. <laughs> so this is, um, it's, it's quite the scene. It's quite the scene. And I have a description of it. I can imagine. It. Okay. <laughs> yes. The most extravagant expressions of joy were indulged in by the people who, at last convinced of their error, were only too glad to make reparation. On being brought together and seeing the fetters, which were still on the limbs of Bourne, Colvin asked, what is that for? Bourne replied, because they say I murdered you. Colvin answered, you never hurt me. Jess struck me with a briar once, but it did not hurt me much. <laughs> and here's my favorite part. Colvin's wife was presented to him, but he <laughs> remarked, that is all over with and would take no further notice of her. <laughs> oh, <my God. laughs> Wow. That stings. <laughs> that hurts. Somebody call the burn unit. So this went on for a couple of days, actually, as people just flocked to the town from miles around to see the man who wasn't murdered. Wow. Now, the Bourne brothers still had to wait a little bit since the judges who had presided over their trial weren't in town, and they also weren't too ready to believe that the murder victim hadn't been murdered. So the judges ordered an examination of Colvin, who proved that he was Colvin by telling them so many stories with specific details from his time in Manchester that they could not possibly doubt him. 
they went so far as to ask, who built this tavern that we're sitting in? And he answered correctly. He even knew what type of wood and where it came from. So wow. there's no precedent for this. Okay. Yeah. Exoneration, not really a thing in the United States or most of the world at this point, probably most of the world, I'm assuming. So there's no precedent. So the guy's lawyer suggests, how about a new trial with this new evidence, including the supposed murder victim? <laughs> Really, all they did was start the trial, and then the prosecution dismissed the charges. Yeah. <laughs> like, immediately. They were like, yes, this is, this is all very, very silly. Um, one thing that they did was, uh, this actually, I think, happened earlier when, when Colvin appeared, so probably still in fetters. They brought out the town cannon to celebrate, and Stephen got to be the first one to light it. <laughs> Oh, an actual cannon. An actual cannon. <laughs> we need a town cannon. We, we really do. I think we should start a petition or something. Yes. Maybe see if there's any grant applications we could do. You know, I'm sure there must be some, some like state grant applications for oh, town yeah. cannons. Yeah. We need one. So regarding the confessions, this is what Sergeant has to say. And again, remember now, Sergeant was one of the attorneys. Mm-hmm. The confessions were probably made and framed for the purpose of making the crime manslaughter or justifiable homicide instead of premeditated murder, and seemed to have been incited by fear on the one hand, men of influence repeatedly telling them that the evidence was strong enough to convict them, and hope on the other. Silas Merrill, who was confined with them, being a cunning rogue, no doubt advised them as to the best way to get out of it. So they probably got just railroaded by everyone from, you know, the, the mayor to the town rogue. Now, there are other ideas. There are other theories about who this man was. Again, from Sergeant. I mean, this was a first-hand source, so I really can't help but quote him, like, constantly. He was the freaking attorney. How often do I have that? There are others who believe that Colvin was really murdered, and that the man supposed to have been Colvin was an imposter gotten up for the purpose of clearing the Bournes. Some color was given to the supposition from the fact that Jesse Bourne was afterwards arrested in Ohio for forgery, where he made the statement that it was not Colvin, and that his brother Stephen did actually murder him. This statement was published, and some who were not personally acquainted with the parties believed it, but no one who examined the proofs of the identity of Colvin believed it for a moment. There were some people who thought maybe it was a fake. Yeah, I'm leaning not towards fake. Yeah, I know. I mean, Although what was fake is that dream. <laughs> the dream was definitely probably the result of hearing about bones being dug yeah. up, hearing about potato sellers. This was already stuff that was in the wind. It was People were talking about it. And maybe he ate some, like, spicy mustard before bed. Or cheese. 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 Yes. Cheese is weird dreams. Cheese dipped in spicy mustard. <laughs> that sounds delicious. Ooh, I'm going to do that tonight and see what I dream. <laughs> there you go. So Colvin stayed in Manchester a few days. Apparently he was a Jersey boy at heart. He asked to be taken home, and they did. And that's where he actually died just a few years later. Now, as for Jesse and the forgery thing, he was 76 years old when he was sentenced in 1860 in Ohio for that forgery thing. And um, then there's kind of a description of his travels after around that time period. About 18 years after the trial in Vermont and when his brother and Russell Calvin, Colvin were both dead, Jesse came as a stranger to Clyde, um, I'm trying to remember where Clyde is. Ohio, maybe still? I don't know. 
He had um, and took employment in a blacksmith shop. He had worked there for a year when one of his fellow workmen, in aimless joke, hung his favorite hammer to a high beam by a cord. Although no one in the place knew anything at that time of his past critical experience, Bourne took the hanging of the hammer to be a malevolent suggestion of the fate he had so narrowly escaped, and at once left the town in apparent terror. He thought, because they hanging the hammer, he thought they were either referencing that he was, you know, supposed to hang, okay. or murder, or something like that. So much symbolism. I know, yeah, it's very, very symbolic. I mean, it, I guess, if you have a guilty conscience, you're sort of looking for that sort of thing. That is very true, yeah, yeah. So he might have been kind of paranoid looking. Maybe I was right. Maybe you get a guilty conscience. Probably not. <laughs> I mean, he literally did confess. So there's, there's whether or not he actually did it, if he didn't do it, there's probably a part of him that still, you know, can almost believe that he did because he said he did. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that makes any wow. sense. So a few years after that, he came back to Clyde, uh, accompanied by a pretty daughter, Got a cabin that was deserted in a swamp and set up as a botanical doctor. Oh, okay. Uh, there he supported himself for some time by selling medicinal roots and herbs until the daughter married a man named Armstrong when he resigned to them the cabin, which they still occupy, and removed to some other hermitage. So he would go back and forth and go see people in, in Clyde and his daughter and everything. Um, so this was a person who knew about his life and wrote into the newspaper. For all we know, could be him. But if it was him, why would you tell that story about the, um, you know, the hammer hanging? Yeah. Because that, for exactly the reasons that you said. I don't know. It's kind of weird. But uh, what this person kind of implied to the paper, the correspondent intimates that the conscience of Jesse Bourne, who is now a strange-looking old man in his 80th year, may not be so guiltless of blood as the conclusion of the cabin trial seemed to prove. So even this person who knows about his life and wrote to the newspaper was like, maybe there's a chance. (laughs) It's weird. And so um, he lived in the swamp uh, for a while. And um, at one point he died, but we don't really know when. We know he lived at least 80. So pretty long life. Not bad. Uh, Stephen had gone from Ohio uh, to Michigan, where he died in 1869, eight, also age 80. Nice. He had, I knew you would. He had a wife and four kids. And um, that's basically the story of the Bourne brothers. Whoa. The very first exoneration of a wrongful conviction in the United States in 1819. Wow. Well, you need an asterisk, though, because... Maybe it was an hey, imposter. It was decided they by the courts. Found a doppelganger. That's what we have, so we're not going to put an asterisk on it. That's just theories that people have. Some people have theories that OJ didn't do it. <laughs> and the courts decided, the criminal courts at least decided that he didn't. So, you know. Yeah, okay. Okay. I first heard of the story years ago, and I kept on meaning to do it, and I kept on forgetting about it. And then I was listening to the second season of Bear Brook, which I highly recommend. Um, the first season was out a couple years ago. That's really excellent, too. The second season is, oh boy, I'm not going to spoil anything. I'm so tempted to, but I'm not going to spoil anything. But there are definitely moments of, like, what the hell? <laughs> because of 
some of the circumstances and the way it's set up and everything. Um, so yeah, a little credit to Bear Brook for bringing this uh, case back to my attention. Also in Sargent's book about this whole trial, at the end of it, he provides pages upon pages of other wrongful convictions. Some of them are specific and have names. Some of them are just, you know, vague and anonymous. This one really stuck out to me, okay? It was an English murder trial in which the circumstances pointed strongly to the prisoner's guilt. And 11 jurymen were for conviction, but the other refused to concur. The jury were discharged, and the prisoner discharged accordingly. Subsequently, the dissenting juror confessed to the judge that he himself was the murderer. Okay. I, I guess he, you know, I don't expect murderers to really have good moral compasses, but he was following his there. Yeah. You know, not okay. following it when he did the actual murder. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that is the Bourne Brothers story. What do you think? I still think this was all a setup to get to me to stop saying guilty. I'm telling you, I wrote this one weeks ago before Amber had all of her life smacking her in the face stuff. Damaging to my almost perfect record. I didn't tell you anything about it in advance, but that's because I don't always. Every once in a while, if there's some like really nutty detail that I find, I'll, I'll tell you. But I don't tell you the stories because I want you to hear them on the podcast first, too. It was fun hearing it all at once without uh, getting pieces way beforehand. Because normally as you're working on it throughout the week, I get to hear them. Yeah, yeah. I do like that, but there were no spoilers here. There were so no spoilers, no previews. It was fun. <laughs> I, I got to uh, hear the story like you guys normally would. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still going to get the... Uh, Pre-release listen, though, because I'm special. Yes, because you're special, because you're married to me, which just automatically confers that dignity upon you. <laughs> so, uh, would you like a recipe? Yes, please. This is from, um, let's see if I put the actual book down. We should have had that tonight when we didn't know what to cook. Oh, we should have had boiled ducks? Oh, no. I <laughs> see, <laughs> you made a mistake there. Um, when you have scalded, and this is from a cookbook from 1812 or 1819, I can't remember. So they know we have ducks and we don't eat them because they're our pets. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yes. yes. We have we, uh, English Bob and Khaki, and they, we, they're our pets, and Khaki's been laying eggs again. Yes, and I'll eat their eggs, but I won't eat them. I'll eat another duck, but not our ducks. <laughs> not our ducks. We'll eat other people's ducks. Yes. <laughs> other people's ducks should really be the, uh, the subtitle here. Yes. All right, to boil ducks. When you have scalded and drawn your ducks, let them remain a few minutes in warm water. Then take them out, put them into an earthen pan, and pour a pint of boiling milk over them. Let them lie in it two or three hours, and when you take them out, dredge them well with flour. Put them into cold water and cover them up. Having boiled slowly about 20 minutes, take them out and smother them with onion sauce. I got the onion sauce recipe, too. Yeah, they, that's pretty important, I would assume. Well, of course I got the recipe. Peel onions very clean and boil them till perfectly tender, then drain the water off and beat them up very fine, after which add a sufficiency of butter and a small portion of cream. Okay. So, it's just, I don't know about just leaving meat and milk out for two to three hours. That... I mean, I know you've already boiled the ducks, so that's good. You've scalded and drawn it, I guess. But I just, I don't, I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. 
it's it's too too many variables there. I feel like we need grossness. to be a little quicker, or else throw it in the fridge. Yeah, that would. Well, I mean, it's the 1800s. That's not a thing. Yeah, the, not, the fridge. Not a thing. The fridge in the 1800s is if you live in a cold place and it's a cold month, the outside. That's the fridge. And a lot of people would like bury. Um, they would bury their food. Um, to preserve it and stuff. There's lots of things about like salting and burying and all kinds of fun stuff like that. Yeah, also you with the onion sauce. Uh, I think that was what stuck out as gross to you. Yeah, I, I don't like onions. It's just a, a Sounds personal good to me, preference. Though. Well, yes. Mm -hmm. So, okay. Yeah, that is uh, the show. Jackson, what are you doing this week? Not preparing my lecture because I'm done teaching. Yay! I have my the, Monday Night Jackson back. The semester is over. So I don't know what I'll do. Things around the house. Lots of things around the house to get caught up on. Yeah, yeah, there is. Do you want to tell everybody what you were teaching? Computer forensics. So uh, he, he stepped into the, the true crime zone. Now we're, now we're both crime people. New timey crimey. New timey crimey. Yes, very new timey crimey. Yeah, it's uh, it's been interesting this semester because you've gotten to come to me with questions sometimes. Although sometimes you'll ask me how to pronounce a legal term and I'll be like, um, Google. Yes. <laughs> Google, Google. So, um, yeah, and uh, I'm going to be... How about you? Probably working on a few old tiny crimeys to try to get up on the Patreon. Yeah, just... Uh, Chilling out, I guess. Chilling out. I like it. That's my favorite thing to do. It is. It's really fun to chill out. Should we go do that now? Yes. Okay, so... Ooh, we should read sources, too. I will, I will, in a minute. But first, we have to do the don'ts of the episode. Oh, yes. So, don't, um, just shuffle off to freaking New Jersey for seven years and let people think you were murdered. All right. <laughs> <laughs> don't prematurely yell guilty every time you listen to a podcast when they talk negative about somebody. <laughs> this, this episode was better than any marriage counseling we could ever get. <laughs> All right. Let's go chill out and bye. Later. My sources were Bearbrook. Seriously, linking it in the show notes, listen to it. If you haven't listened to season one, it's very good. They're both standalone, season one and two, but listen to both. The Northwestern University School of Law, Bloom Legal Clinic Center on Wrongful Convictions. Murder by Gaslight. Long title alert coming up. Deep breath. The trial, confessions, and conviction of Jesse and Stephen Bourne for the murder of Russell Colvin and the return of the man supposed to have been murdered by the Honorable Leonard Sargent. St. Albans Transcript, Rutland Herald, and the Burlington Weekly Free Press, the last three from newspapers.com. Oh, thank you, Chris Garcia. Chris, woohoo! <laughs> what do you call him, Johnny Hippopotamus? Johnny Hippopotamus. <laughs> All right. And my source is, I'm awesome. <laughs> Except when you feel guilty prematurely. <laughs>